is what's left in Albany. I'm a friendly neighborhood eco-socialist, and I'm here live for my last in-studio live broadcast here at WCAALP as a producer here at this community radio station. It's been quite a journey. was doing the Three Left show for the last five years, and for the last year of 2023, I switched to this one-hour format What's left in Albany? Where? Where I cover the built environment, politics, and people of Albany, as well as the surrounding area. I discussed underliners. I'll use the past tense. Underliners of community projects and organizations to discuss themselves and what they're doing. I also discuss local news and issues. So I oppose the neoliberal present, as well as pretentious fascist futures. I am not afraid of the future, though. I look forward to it eagerly and excitingly. Uh, and do not look to the past or even the present. I'm not really an in the moment guy. Uh, while promoting, I promote, I want to promote and seek to promote the build out of a commons economy and a delegate of democracy or direct democracy, waging the clandestine insurgency against confusion and ignorance because we cannot help together to change our conditions until we understand them. To ask the quick questions, to play, to play the why game. Why is there injustice? Why is there poverty? Why is that guy over there on the corner homeless? Why is there somebody who's about to, who's probably going to freeze to death tonight here in snowy Albany? Why is it some uh, properties will be shoveled and others will not? So, in this final episode of What's Left in Albany, though I may broadcast again in other means, I have access to all of the services and platforms online, whether it be Twitch, YouTube, I can make a project out of posting all episodes of the Three Left Show, including this, on YouTube. Though I'd start with Three Left Show. Three Left Show can continue to be syndicated on the station on Saturdays at noon. I doubt that will be pulled anytime soon. But I want to get into why am I a leftist? Why am I a socialist? Why would I even identify as a communist depressed? Why do I think that there's so many ha- reforms ventures and community enterprises, I just don't think are good enough. I don't mean they're addressing the underlying causes. Unless you address them or talk about them, take them seriously. Don't pretend pretend they don't exist. We all, I mean, I kind of came to various conclusions about certain aspects of our society, about how unjust they are and, and that there's something underlying there. I asked the why question over and over again. And eventually I would hit walls. There would be an end to that chain of why questions uh, until I got to more radical anarchist and Marxist points of view. 
But then that opens up, which is a good thing, more questions, more why questions. Well, why did not these answers from the Marxists and socialists overcome systemic injustice, whether, you know, in capitalism, our economic system, and political system in the past? And these questions then themselves led to answers from neo-Marxists and anarchists today of various tendencies because there's different ways of answering those, those why questions. Why? Why are there underlining foundational problems? What are they? When people talk about elites, who are they really referring to? If I, when you hear elite, you should think capitalists. Because I say otherwise, to say to not say they're capitalist elites, is to suggest that some of the elites in America are not capitalists, that there are somehow socialist elites in America, or the liberal ones who are not capitalists. They're all capitalists. Is if that's not obvious, don't it's a delusion otherwise or a mistake. It's simply a mistake of conflation. I'm going to go into a good uh, summary here of a book I've not read, uh, not read, but I've uh, I've, I've covered um, uh, summaries of, and it definitely crystallizes and summarizes uh, a lot of different information I've I've internalized, not fully internalized because I can't regurgitate it. Wrote. All right, I'm not that kind of learner, right? I can write an essay about it, <laughs> do my research. And it's Dave Harvey's. David Harvey is a Marxist in the UK. And part of my miraculation journey uh, post-09 recession was a talk of his where he talks about some of the contradictions of capitalism or the system at large and how they, they factored in. So he was one of those voices early on who was, who was providing a good why explanation. Why did the recession happen, the, the mortgage crisis, the, the, bank bu uh, the housing bubble, and the banking crash? Marxists seem to have better answers. Definitely more than just saying it was greed or there's some demigod uh, or the activists just didn't try hard enough or, or, oh, well, it's just money. Money equals social power. What can you do? But why is money social power? Why does it confer this uh, this power in a so-called democracy? So he, he wrote a book recently, or in the last five years, The 17 Contradictions of Capitalism. And this is a really good explanation here. I'm going to go one by one, very short, for each one. So I'm very breezing through it. But with each of these contradictions, there will be a proposed solution. There will literally be a few words, so very not going to be expanded upon. If you want expansions on any of these answers, The Three Left Show has all of that content laid out episode to episode. It's, it's scattershot, of course, because I'm bouncing from topics, and that's how my nerdy brain works. But here's a crystallation of the underlying problems. And if we're not talking about those underlying problems. I'm really not taking the speaker or the project seriously. I think there's something missing here. Because unless these things are addressed or acknowledged even, if they're not even acknowledged, like, well, this is a problem, but it's got to be overcome with tech. Temporarily, perhaps. You're nowhere there. So the first set he goes through are the foundational ones. These are the ones that are always there. They've always been a part of capitalism. And they will always exist as long as it is capitalism. So maybe there's a tautology happening here where I say it's capitalism because it's capitalism. I don't mean it in that way. I just mean that it's foundational to how our system works. And I'll go into all these issues that kind of come up as satire. And, and when people point out the absurdity of our society, and it's usually kind of, it could be pinned on human nature. Oh, it's because of human nature it's so absurd. 
Isn't that the human condition? Like, that's not a why explanation to me. Because then there's all these other humans that act completely differently, that have a different model of economy, or in tribals, or in tribal societies, if you want to call them that. But the first contradiction is use versus exchange value. Exchange value is a value of something when you're exchanging it, right? Market price versus use value. What's the value of this to me to use right now? Right, that those come, um, that, yeah, metaphor of to, to water in the desert is priceless. To water in, in someone who lives in a rainy, you know, in a rainy place, it's, it's worth, almost worthless. It has zero exchange value, but it has use value. Some things always have a high use value because we need it. Exchange value is different. Exchange value is the value of something on the market, which means, but exchange value as an equation is the cost of production plus profits plus rents. Rents come in the form of loan interest and land price. So the price of something in when you're exchanging it is always going to be higher than its use value. And it seems like, in fairness, what you should pay to, in exchange should be what it costs to make it. And the cost of how it's made is factors in scarcity and, and other factors, the labor. That stuff is, is either static or changing in, in production price, production value is is students but example is housing you know when when use and exchange value are opposed then there's a crisis right the use value of a house when there's an oversupply uh while the exchange value of a house keeps going up and up and up so the solution is to promote use value care about the use value of something what's the use value of this house because i can tell you the exchange value of a house is not representative of its use value. It's not based on how scarce housing is. It's talked about like it is, but the exchange value of the house includes, right, the need for profit to resell. It includes the price of land, which is static, and loan interest for any mortgage or whatever payment is being made for it via banks. Those costs are added on. And that's unfair for the next, for following reasons. But the next contradiction is the social value of labor, social value of work, versus the representation of money. Dollars, or any currently flowing currency, isn't really a good representation of value, or at least not of the different kinds of value. So there's kind of two kinds. There's uh, just an exchange and use, but there's also the value of storing value versus exchanging value. Some currencies are good at storing value, like gold and minerals, commodity money as it's called. And then there are some types of money that are good for exchange, like dollars. And But dollars are really bad at storing value. It's how you get these mega billionaires. Bezos and Musk have their nearing trillionaire status, $800, $900 billion. Is that dollar amount? Does that really rep, what does that really represent? It's not really a good representation of all the labor that was done, that is done in the economy. You can represent money as labor, but it's, it's kind of difficult, right? Why? Because you could say you pay someone hourly. Is the work they're going to do in one hour worth the same as the next hour? The solution is to pay people daily salaries, I suppose. 
you know, the, for the people who only get, uh, they're really productive only one hour of the week, <laughs> but you pay them for the whole day. Or factoring in the fact that the value of any product or production rests on the labor of many people who are now dead. The infrastructure that's been built, the society, the soldier, you stand on the shoulders of giants. Does the money value, does that represent all of that labor that was been done? Not quite. Not really. It's not really good. One type of a way of thinking about this, right? It's not a solution, really. But think about how if money represents the value of things that have sometimes have an ex expiration date, food, certain goods, shouldn't money have an expiration date? Wouldn't that certainly cut down the amount of massive accumulation and inequality of it? But it doesn't really stop all those separate processes. So at the very least, you could have, we could go for having separate money systems, one that's for exchange, one that's for calculating stored value. Contradiction three is private property versus the state. So private property itself, this is private property like factories, land, not personal possessions, but productive land, productive property. This creates distance between active and passive uses of property. Right? You own your home, that's an active use of your property. Someone who lives a county away or a state away or a county away and collects rent is a passive use of property. There's a distance between that. But so this monopoly, the, then the use of uh, private property is tends to create monopolies. You know, it, when you look at the charts of how who owns most of the land in America, it's a growing minority of people or corporations. This is the tendency. This is what naturally occurs in capitalism. But this monopoly of use, it's also a monopoly of use, right? It's my private property. I have a monopoly of use on it. I get to choose what's for even though it may have nature on it and things moving around on it. But this monopoly on property as well as wealth, because that passive property accumulates. It means you can pass it down from generation to generation and create those systemic inequalities and classes. But this requires a state monopoly on violence to enforce it. But the contradiction then is the state then has the right to, using this monopoly of violence, regulates and intervenes in the market and with private property. So there's always this binary of private and public property, market actors and the state. Solution proposed is the viable, any viable politics needs to diffuse this binary with a form of commons property, property that's shared in, in and between communities. This leads us to the next contradiction, which is private appropriation versus the commons or any commons comes down to that production in an industrial economy is socialized, right? You have social units, whether they be corporations, co-ops, people in a factory, that's a social activity. You have more than a few people or one person doing the work, that's a social activity. It's done collectively. The production is socialized. But the benefits are individualized. They're for one person, the owner, or a few people or a class of people, stockholders. So you get these failures of the commons, or, or rather a, the destruction of the commons, uh, or the commons are used for personal benefit or you know 
minority benefit. So solution, the commons, you have a commons in the first place that's managed via popular governance. So the production is already socialized. That's why socialism was really just taking the workplaces that exist and just flipping the ownership structure as well as the education level so that everyone has the same education. So that's a goal. So everyone is actually an equal actor or possible equal actor. Next contradiction is capital versus labor. This one probably familiar to you. The goals of the boss and the worker are diametrically opposed. By boss, I mean any capitalist that seeks to do more with less, right? Get the most production for the least cost. Meanwhile, a worker wants to do the least amount of work for the most, uh, for the most pay. This is a contradiction, right? Meanwhile, workers in capitalism have the freedom, or the only freedom they really have as a worker, as a wage slave, as we call say it, is to reproduce their own domination, to, to reproduce this, the, the conditions of capitalism or their own employment. At the end of the day, labor creates value but does not control it. This is, this is the byline of any leftist writer. The solution is that producers collaborate on what and how and when to produce. And since all consumers are also in some type producers, it's not like anyone's being left out here, in theory. And in practice, when done. The next contradiction that's a foundational one is the active versus fixed capital. So here's a simple equation for you, which is the cycle of market activity. You start with money. All right, don't ask where I got it. Uh, the money is used to invest in some kind of commodity production. Commodities are produced. And you sell them on the market for money, more money than what you started with. But this process of this is the process of accumulation, which eventually, when hitting some kind of limit, creates stagnation. Why would it hit a limit? Well, when the growth of this production and the money stacks grow, it grows in all areas. You're not just growing the amount of commodities you produce. You're growing the amount of transportation needed, the amount of housing for the workers. Maybe you're even growing the population itself. That's a result of industrial revolution, after all. No no shame in admitting that. It's something to be proud of, I've had, because it was through socialized production that it occurred. But, but here, here's an example, right? Any urban center is usually a victim of its own success, right? It gets, it gets uh, people come, there's growth, there's growth in jobs, then there's growth in transit and parking and car ownership, and then eventually no one can get downtown. And then uh, the capital or the people who, who can will shift somewhere else. But there's some kind of stagnation that occurs. It hits some kind of limit, whether it's space. Maybe it's an environmental limit. Maybe it's the extraction of a resource that runs out. The solution is to slow down daily life. Slow down the rat race. Stop running in it check out in a way not feel like you have to keep reinvesting to make more money maybe you can get reach a level of development that is enough the last foundational uh, contradiction is the unity of production versus reality it comes down to workers cannot buy what they produce in an hour this isn't just for minimum wage hourly labor i think it also if you're a data scientist the amount of data you or analysis you produce in an hour 
is sold or valued more than what you could afford for. You know, you couldn't afford your own services or whatever you produce. Just as if you work minimum wage, making sandwiches, the sandwiches are $15, you make $15, you can afford, you know, or $16 sandwich. You're not going to be able to afford or minimum wage in, as it is here, it's twelve fifty, and the sandwiches are $15. You can't afford lunch on an hour of work. But this comes out, here's the contradiction as it, as it actually, you know, in the macro level. When you have a high surplus, you know, high level production, a surplus creation, because you're making a lot and paying less, this threatens realizing surplus value on the market because there's lower demand. People cannot afford what the market is producing. The way this has been solved is to produce it overseas, so it's cheaper here, and thus the workers on minimum wage can afford it at Walmart, but you can understand that's that's the source of that problem, right? It isn't just, you know, oh, we hate America. Why can't we make it in America anymore? Well, I ask why, and this is the answer. It's because re- production does not match people's needs. Meanwhile, if you do get high demand, you know, workers get paid more via empowered workers, this threatens the creation of surplus value. Anything I propose on the state or municipal level, I'm going to be seen as a job killer or hurting business. And this is true. I do not deny this. This does hurt capitalist production or the the maximization of surplus value. But it allows people, but, but the argument from the progressive is that, well, but people will be able to buy your products that, that they make. But this hurts surplus value. This comes back to like the Eureka moment when I realized I was a full anti-capitalist. I was reading about the product, global production of steel and how it was there was a surplus in it because of the steel that's made in France because of union contracts, that they were set to produce this much. They weren't going to cut workers or the amount of steel they were going to make because of prices being down. And China was using and making X amount of steel. But there was more steel being made in the world than being used for once. So the price was going down. And I'm like, well, that's a good thing. Prices go down. Oh, but this hurts profitability. So it's, it's a simple matter that if the, econ- the economy is doing well in one area, it's going to hurt another area. Like, oh, well, you know, we have high employment. Oh, but that hurts and that causes inflation. Oh, but that's, that's, a, that's good for importing. Oh, but the you know, more imports, is, is, it hurts the dollar. You know, it just goes on and on and on. So we need a needs-based economy that's informed by the popular will and assessment. You know, it, it's through popular mechanisms. We assess what our needs are, and then we can produce things based on that rather than can I maximize the amount of billions I make? This makes me think of something that uh, I countered where I was. I mentioned that I'm for degrowth, um, degrowing the economy, especially uh, at least ecologically speaking, the footprint of it. And the usual response from well-meaning uh, liberal progressive is like, well, we have to maintain wealth levels. But my retaliation is, you mean the economy where 60 to 70% of all the wealth is going to the top 1,000 people? Not top 1,000, just 8,000 people. That amount, that's the wealth we're maintaining. We have to maintain that. Why? We're not getting the wealth that's being created. What's the point of growing 
if you're not getting any of it. So these contradictions are why you don't get it. That's something that it's good to hit on. That's why I'm hitting on my last episode here. Here are the moving contradictions. These are the ones that aren't so foundational. They are the ones that kind of have come about in the last 100 years or 20th century, or they're moving in that they change over time. Right? It's not like, oh, capitalism has changed. It has reforms. It does. It does form. It is not completely static. The foundational things, they don't change. Here are the things that have. So this is number, technically number seven here, or eight. Tech and work and human disposability. So for reasons that I can't fully explain for myself, human labor adds surplus value to things, to commodities or production. Mechanical labor is cheaper but it doesn't add that surplus value. Why? Because I guess you know, robots don't buy any. Automation, so what it comes down to is that you know, humans are overall disposable in an economy where you can automate. But automation can be a good thing in that it can liberate uh, us by working less. But because automation is done for the lowering costs in production to maximize profitability, it's a disaster. So automation can be a disaster or it can be liberatory. So it's the agenda to use tech to lighten social labor and dissolve these kinds of divisions in work and technology. This leads to the next contradiction, which is the divisions of labor themselves. Here is the contradiction that divisions of labor are necessary for social control, but divisions of labor, especially when it's over-specialized, hurts productivity. This is so many anecdotes, so many little stories and articles talking about specialization hurting productivity or look how absurd this is. Also, competitive labor markets themselves work against the efficient organization of labor. I kind of hit on this slightly uh, in the last uh, episode that you may be listening to where I cover the um, honest giving of salary ranges in a competitive labor market. It just doesn't seem to make any sense to me. Why, 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 why do these small business owners act like this? Why can't they be honest about what they would pay people or the pay skills that they can offer? It's just not an efficient organization. So a solution, though, to any kind of division of labor is to rotate and share work to reduce the technical division of labor and create and then do this within democratic modes of organization. You know, I'm a janitor, but I have a vote in the company, you know, sort of thing. And uh, in sharing work or rotating work, you know, especially when we're all similarly educated and less specialized, but certainly there are like, you know, certain roles that are specialized, but you still pick up. It's kind of like, it's not a contradiction to say we can all be responsible for cleaning up, right? And sharing that kind of workload so that nobody is actually the janitor. Everyone is a little bit the janitor. You know, if everyone just puts in a little 10 minutes. Oh, but you're taking 10 minutes away from the doctor. Well, if we had free college, we'd have more doctors or we raise the cap on doctors. You know, we, we have a very low ratio of doctors to patients in this country. Other, other nations with more affordable college or free college, they have more doctors. So it's not really a problem. It's a problem for us Americans. Next contradiction. This is a very interesting one, actually. Uneven development in production and space. I say it's interesting because it's, it's not solvable. It's something that plagued even, you know, the planned economies, 
when you do planned econ economics. It does make more sense. It's more efficient to have development, more development here than there. And in our current economy, capital moves to avoid stagnation, which creates localized booms and busts. You know, we have old West boom ta bus towns, ghost towns, and we have the Rust Belt. And now, we, you know, and then they move to Silicon Valley. But maybe in another 10, 20 years, Silicon Valley will be another ghost town. As the capital moves to uh, Seattle, where Amazon is, and the warehouse economy, or moves to New York, or wherever else AI is being developed. In which case, New York and Massachusetts are probably the top competitors. But every other urban metro area is also competing for that capitalization, that investment dollars. It's got to go somewhere, but it can't go everywhere. Because some opportunities are going to be more worthwhile. Just as it was that you know, someday your town will be deinvested. Your neighborhood will be underinvested in. And, and that anyone who is not a fierce anti-capitalist and wanting to build the next new economy but it is working to alleviate these symptoms of underinvestment somewhere where there was investment at one point. And then there's a question. It's like, oh, people should just move to where the money's going. Just pick up and move. Everyone should just go. But then it leads to that other contradiction. If everyone moved to Silicon Valley, as so many already has, it's already totally strung out, unaffordable. It's hit that limit. So the contradictions kind of work together to create the more ass we live in. The next contradiction is the disparities of income and wealth. Inequality is, is something everyone can kind of complain about at some point. Conservatives even see it as a problem at somewhat, some point. But it also comes down to is it a, it's a problem for capitalism too, that profit-making is harder as inequality grows. There's fewer customers and markets that you can go to. Demand falls and reinvestment follows. That's one option The other or result. The other result is that civil unrest develops. And it comes down to the fact that inequality really can't be reduced without stagnation. So whether it be the you know right-wing wingers who say, well, look, inequality is a good thing. Without it, we would stagnate. And they're right. But that is not a law of nature. It's a law of capitalism. I would say if it was a choice between capitalism, which requires inequality to grow, and something else, I would choose, I would choose something else. I would choose socialism <laughs> or something like it or the new economy or no post-capitalism. So oh, anyway, but the, uh, the solution to this contradiction is to end the inequality of provisions, or at least create an economic floor. May this be uh, via a... A basic income, which is kind of one level, which doesn't really solve the contradiction, but at least it is some kind of economic floor because rents could be raised and then it's gone, or inflation, as we saw with the pandemic. Uh, you can start, you can have the basic six provisions of like goods, which include, um, it's like it's healthcare, transportation, um, education, housing, goods, food. Basic provisioning. And then the last, uh, or the Yes, there's that, which creates an economic floor, and so you still have markets for everything. Uh, and then you have the job guarantee, which can still be sort of market-based, but it's the guarantee income, basic floor of necessities, or the job that pays for everything, and, and more. Different kind of guarantees. Next contradiction is social reproduction, meaning 
the chores. Think about your household chores. Or just generally uh, surviving. There is an antagonistic you know, conflict between capital and reproducing the workforce. You know, it doesn't really need all of us, you know. It has to be forced to really, like, care or provide anything. I'll get to how. Uh, but simply put, overexploited workers, to, you know, for maximizing those uh, profits, don't do well in producing surplus. <laughs> you know, they're starving, malnourished, mental health crisis, maybe. And that's, yeah, if you ever hear mental health crisis, think lack of social reproduction. Actually, no, that's the last one. That's the last contradiction, too. But reproduction, so what capital does, though, in its natural course, is to externalize or privatize reproduction, which lowers overall demand. So by externalizing child care, you know, by, women have to join the workforce in the 70s to make up for the inflation that occurred, and so there's a need for child care. And that's something that families now have to pay for because women have joined the workforce, they're emancipated. Thus, that's another thing families need to pay for. They need to pay a rent for. It's not provided by the public. It could be, and that's where, through struggle, we can get capital to cover some of the costs of social reproduction via welfare spending, but they will fight really hard to cut it the next cycle. So there's a solution of trying to monetize social labor, child care, home, work at home, the, the social labor refers to all the things that housewives would do or anyone who stays at home. You know, it's a, it's a job in itself, maintaining a home. The dishes, the laundry, it, it can fill two, of your, two work days with that. Isn't that valuable labor? Not to the market, but it, let's say it did compensate it. Well, monetizing it only, seeks, only serves capital as well. You're making a market for it. Somebody's making money. You're privatizing uh, babysitting and uh, and someone to come want and nannies and and and, and work in maids. The solution is to reduce the distinction between labor for others, the labor you do for others, you know, favors, household chores, and 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 those that you do for yourself. You know, if I'm working in a community garden and growing food. I'm not just doing it for me. I'm doing it for a lot of other people, but I'm not just doing it for them. I'm doing it for myself. This is the mindset to have when thinking about anything collectively. Usually any collective enterprise, volunteering, nonprofit work, it's something that some population is doing for some other mal-underserved uh, population. I want to be part of projects where, and, and this is what mutual aid is all about, that I'm doing this for me as well as everyone around me, just as they are doing the same. We are sharing in that responsibility, and that is creating community, having community laundry. So it's not just me doing my laundry. I bring my clothes, and of course, sorting it would be the issue here, but it's done in loads at a community laundromat or a laundry service with a co-op, anyway. Uh, contradiction, last of the moving ones, is something near and dear to all Americans, freedom versus domination, but with the Marxist twist. U.S. freedoms, our freedoms in a liberal democracy, depend on the oppression of the third world via our empire. Also, parallel, when we talk of freedom, we're talking about individual capitalist freedom 
which requires restrictions in the commons. You can't regulate, a, you know, have community rules when you put individual freedom first and vice versa. It's more about caring about, as saying it's as important to have social freedoms as individual freedoms. And that requires an equal entitlement to basic needs. And the same goes for the third world. They have the freedom to nationalize their resources or to choose what kind of government they want to have. But we have to use our empire to impose not really their sovereignty, their national freedom, their collective freedom. No, it's more about the freedom for individuals to invest and enact in capitalist modes of production there. I'll go back to this one. Uh, it's one of the moving contradictions. Monopoly versus competition. Another bulwark. Uh, contradictions completely insolvable in, in America as it is. Firms need control of the market to maximize value as well as their own security. But the system does need competition. So there's always this binary seesaw between centralizing and decentralizing. It's something that the government's always constantly doing, centralizing and siphoning money to the from the workers to the rich via tax cuts and what have you. But it's also and it's also decentralizing. Or 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 government or or even the Soviet Union. It centralizes and then decentralizes. There's really no overcoming it, says David Harvey. You just have to work with this contradiction. But an overall solution is to have a centralized power that is vested in popular modes or associations where decentralized capacities are mobilized. Kind of a word salad. But if you repeat it a few times, it can click. Like, oh, yeah, you centralize in the municipality, but you decentralize how things are done. It's not being decided on by a few bureaucrats. Because, by the way, you know, Walmart is a planned economy. It's very centralized. And it creates, it's very efficient. It creates the lowest prices and the most stuff. So the last three contradictions are the dangerous ones, the ones that are existential threats. You'll hear some versions of these three things from various leftist writers and see it in books. The first one is endless compound growth. Capital acquires endless compound growth by means of expansion. There's various ways it can expand. It can expand through money, increasing the money supply, which doesn't create inflation, but it does increase the money supply. It can do it by destruction. Here it says creative destruction, but basically if it can destroy everything, it can expand again. Or you can destroy whole sections of the country, but it will actually, in the end, still be good for business. Copper bombing, nuclear war, it can do this by privatizing. Privatizing the commons, privatizing something that's in the public realm, or some community thing, or the house, or something, or the household, or the family. Privatize it. Privatize, privatize. And here, at least, at least with a quip, where there's it's set of problem with government is or socialism is you run out of other people's money. Well, I would say the problem with capitalism is you, you eventually run out of things to privatize. Especially when, if you've been listening to me, it's not about other people's money. It's a questioning of the foundation of how. The money is created. What is value? It does this via by increasing sales, okay? you know, expanding the markets overseas or, or or within the country by selling to children, 
It also does this via obsolescence, whether it's planned or implied or cultural. You know, this this season's fashions or it's planned. Oh, my phone broke and I can't I'm not allowed to fix it. So this is also done by that monopoly power, the ability to use copyrights and so on to extend one's control marketing. Back to the dangerous ones. Uh, yeah, the endless popula- uh, endless compound growth. So it also increases, ex- expands endlessly through marketing, not only marketing and where, when, in the public realm, on the bus shelters and billboards, then on your phone, and then and it also expands through new f- economic activity, like in the attention economy, data economy. It also does it via static demand. By growing to include things that were free before, you know, it's privatized air, water, I mean, water sources, for Christ's sake. Nestle is moving, moves to privatize water. That's how you got these water crises. Even the rain, they will, they will seek to own it. And population growth itself. Now, to make clear, so I've. No socialist should really be ever accused of Malthusian thinking. We're not thinking in this way. Population growth is not nor required to be exponential in a natural state, right? It can do what it can do, whether it goes up, stay, it, it, it stagnates or declines. That could be up to us or whatever natural process is happening. But in capitalism, it has to go up exponentially. It is a source of expanding the economy. I would like to take that out of the equation when we make our decisions about population management or lack thereof of a population management. It's okay for a country to decline in population, right? It's not, doesn't mean they're going to go to zero. It just means it's dropping to stabilize because you could say they overproduced and, and that, and I'm talking, it's natural process of population movement. Right, not to say it must decline, that it can decline, is the issue. Because whenever it, it it's, it's happening and it is happening, people have their hair on fire, but they're thinking about their stock portfolios, not human well-being. They're thinking about oh, but our national competitiveness in capitalism, or in what way? Or are you thinking of army size? You know. Military might is not measured in army size anymore, you know. Come on. So uh, the next very dangerous, and, and any any left-leaning person will harp on this, capital versus nature. Nature resists being a commodity. You can go on a hike in the woods. You can picnic. Um, here's the example that uh, someone was using. You know, it's like, oh, hiking in the woods, the woods are canceled. You know, oh. People are picnicking on a beach and not eating at my uh, food establishment. Beaches are canceled. Picnics canceled. Dog park, using a publicly available dog park, that's canceled. That's nature, using it. So nature resists being a commodity. Animals move around, whatever. Ties going in and out. But ecocide isn't stopping capital. Now, now, um, capital does kind of solve this contradiction on its own in in kind of three ways. The ecocide. Why why ecocide and ecological collapse? It's not going to stop capitalism. Bring it to an end. Why? Because capitalism kind of has, in the past, resolved limits of scarcity with innovation. And that's the usual go-to response. Oh, well, we can still have capitalism, green capitalism, because 
well, we, we've solved these problems before, but it's a contradiction that hasn't gone away. In fact, it's just intensified. We've staved it off. You know, we, we stopped the population bomb of food production with innovation. But anyway, there's that half. There's the fact that ecological damage and the disaster of climate chaos can be included in the money flows, right? The cleanup and ecotech and environmentalism have for themselves been made a commodity. That's another version of it. You know, environmentalism is now part of capitalism. And last, there's disaster capitalism. That, uh, referring to the shock doctrine from Naomi Klein, that capitalism can continue. In fact, it thrives when there's a disaster. Oh, look at all the little robots that are needed now to clean up the environment. Going to make a lot of money. So last contradiction is the revolt of humanity versus universal alienation. Social problems need social solutions. Meanwhile, capitalists provide solutions that individualize and alienate. So when you hear mental health crisis, think how alienated everyone is because they're individualized and we lack communities or strong communities. Why is that? Because we don't see social problems as needing social solutions. And eventually the social cost of maintaining capital reach some kind of breaking point. We break. So, and rationalization of work, which is part of this process, destroys personal happiness. Now, part of this is that we have various packages of technology. Let's just say, use the internet and any labor-saving device. These things kind of free up our free time. They give us avenues of communication, of which I am using right now. And this is practice, praxis. I'm encouraging people to think about alternatives to capitalism. Now, am I just kind of maybe creating some catharsis or scratching some, like, consumerist need to kind of like, you know, is this, I'm making a consumer product here. So is this praxis or am I or is the Internet creating interpassivity, apathy? Well, now that I've heard about these alternatives, I kind of feel a little better about things, even though nothing's really been done yet. Long-term solution is to have a cosmopolitan equality where we conf uh, our conflicts in society are kind of over the good life and not about uh, various other social problems. So for me personally, when I break all this down into like what kind of projects would I undertake, the agenda I have in front of me, and this is like my life lifelong project here. I've got li lifelong goals, and I want them to be attainable. So I've tried to... They're not in any particular order, but they're they're based on the order of like, okay, these these goals of like how to resolve these contradictions. What is a practical project to undertake, political one or otherwise, to address this? So what I kind of come up with is to have a production center that is worker managed. The production center is integrated with a type of community currency to have that alternative exchange to have a land trust or a type of commons with a membership and governance or co-op structure, to encourage or to, for all these things to have a balanced job complex, which is just a tool that I've um, covered via Paracom and what have you, and I kind of touched on it. You can do it with apps or it can be within organization. Job sharing, stuff like that. For, for the ecological thing, to have a steady state policy after a certain level of development perhaps to 
restrict or ban any rent seeking on fixed property in particular to have, and this is something that I'm including uh, to have a participatory economic planning board for that actualizing that of reality of our, what our needs are to assess them. We need a board to, to collect that data, polling surveys, and create economic planning based on that. Rather, well, how much capital can we attract with uh, the amount of graduates that our colleges are pumping out? But what kind of, how many jobs can we arrange for this this new uh, workforce being created? And uh, last, horizontalism in our organizations. Sociocracy is a good model. Look it up. It's soci- sociocracy, which is basically a horizontal structure. It's a bunch of circles. And the circles interconnect with each other. You have like a head circle. And each circle is like a committee. Oh, yeah. And then uh, last two things, uh, have to have some basic economic guarantee. So it could start with basic income then or provide the six basics. And this is an ongoing debate. Provide the, a basic guarantee of the six basics, which are education, health, house, food, goods, and transport, or guarantee a job, which is Eco-Socialist Green New Deal. And uh, social enterprises to fill in those gaps of the social labor, to have social enterprises. So it's not any one person's responsibility to do all those household chores, but we don't have to make a market out of it. So an ongoing project in Jackson, Mississippi, which I'm a fan of, called Cooperative Jackson, is sort of where, like with this agenda, they're they're pursuing this, this tact. And they currently, this is just where they're at now, they have an urban farm. A main space, a building, you know, a small community center for meetings, uh, an office, and they have a maker space in there. They are constructing, if not their the, the last post about it was 2017 or 19, so they must have it by now, a, fabrica- a fabrication lab, which is the beginning of their community production center. And they have a land trust with about 30 properties that they plan on rehabbing, and they've probably got them at dirt cheap prices. They do have plans to form co-ops for waste, construction, temp work, security, healthcare, arts, repair of some kind, green retrofits, and food service. So that's one of those social enterprises, right? Food service, community kitchen, replace uh, HelloFresh or ordering or, or um, all those, all those you know, ordering and food delivery stuff. So here are the possible projects I think with my current skill set knowledge base, I could start up or I want to pursue going forward in my life, five, 10 years, setting off. You know, when I started this program, three left show, I had like a five-year plan to do this show. That's about finished. <laughs> now, now for the next one, what's next for Dan Platt? It rests on what other people are doing and what I'm going to join. Now I could, take the next five years to join different organizations and find out what's wrong with them and why I don't fit in or why what they're doing is radical enough or why they're not addressing these contradictions with the projects I just listed. Like if you're not doing that, you know, and, and, and there aren't really, we do have a community land trust, so I could join that and see how I can make them more horizontal or make it more like um, they're selling housing or forming housing co-ops with their properties. Let's see. So I went into that, but there's also the personal projects of I want to start a bulk buying group, like a let's see, what's it called, a buyers club, but for you know household items and stuff like that. 
And this was brought up. Um, so I'm an IWW member, which is the kind of decentralized union. And there was also the idea of having a bulk buying group. We're scattered around the area, so I'm not sure how well that would work. But at least maybe have something in Albany where it's a group of households and we all share our Sam's Club membership and we all just get all the toilet paper and all the basic stuff that we would all get anyway. And then the stuff that's specific to us and our tastes would be like the last 50 dollars of our food budget or a hundred dollars and eventually you know we cut down on our food bills or grocery bills and we're complaining about oh i paid three hundred dollars for a few bags see what we can do maybe we uh we invest as a group and do the the community supported agriculture the next stage of that is the income by the way when i finish this uh if i get to it i do plan on getting to it is uh, i have articles brought up to explain each of these, these kind of three main things I'm looking at. Income sharing group, which is usually in one household. The only ones that exist are just households or like, you know, one house communes of various people who are found family and they basically go into an agreement where they share their incomes. And that means they're also bulk buying all their household goods. And this is made pot, you know, expedited by the fact that they share a household. So um, how to do it with multiple households would be something I would like to try to figure out. Because that's kind of the beginning of a more community economy. You know, by pulling our resources, we could negotiate with co-ops or other local businesses to get better prices for ourselves. And they, they get a baked-in customer, which helps their sustainability. The other project, community project, I'd love to undertake, and I'm the only person that really considers this, uh, or not, not the only one that it was considered before, but at the moment within my scene and friend groups, a time bank to develop that uh, and maybe and to grow it so it's just not some niche little like you know hippie thing to work it into any and all volunteering opportunities to create a volunteering economy uh, where people are trading these services for each other. But time banks aren't good for trading goods. But if it was to be worked into producing at the makerspace or the community enterprise, then it could be volunteer at this organization, get free laundry services, and so on. And the last is to pick at random some shareable ec economy project. There's a group, there's a org called Shareable. They're always posting what other communities are doing, and it's always pretty cool and like, oh, look at that. I'd love to try doing that. There's a hundred of them. So it's, <laughs> the, the, the time bank is the one I've settled on as like, this is what I really want to replicate. But it doesn't touch on you know, everything, but it is one of those alternative currencies that gets people thinking differently and acting differently too. Now I could, I could dig into the organizations I'm already members of. I'm a member of IWW. I've joined a local, by local I mean Capital District Socialist Party, small committee of people doing mutual aid stuff. And I'm a member of the Greens doing party building, either for winning local elections or doing various campaigns for public infrastructure like uh, Albany Internet or a news district, which I, I would need to explain and I want to. I'm Dan Platt. You're listening to What's Left in Albany, my last and final show. So I am going two hours to explain why I am such a radical and what I intend to do with my time after I'm finished here, now that I am finished with WCAA. And so, as I explained, I could jump between different nonprofits. I've 
interact with a lot of them. They leave a lot to be desired. They're not addressing these fundamental contradictions. Sometimes they're doing prefigurative politics where they're preparing the ground, preparing for revolution, preparing for a, a, ch- a big change, waiting for the rupture in the economy when, the, when it hits the fan, which was the case, uh, let's say, in 2009, that big recession. But the government has responded by basically doing a bailout whenever there's any sense that there could be such a thing again. So I don't think we're going to get that big drop in the economy because the government has made a policy now to do quantitative easing and just push push another uh, $50 billion. They did it during COVID. They did it uh, sometime uh, another time in the teens. It's like anytime there's some kind of bubble bursting, whether it's a commodity or not, it's or some kind of looks like economic downturn, they just pump money in so they can say, oh, the economy is doing okay even though everybody's cost of living is up and everyone's doing worse, relatively speaking. So I am leaning towards Green Party building. I've been a Green Party member since 2014. Uh, If you listen to my program, I don't shut up about them. I'm going to continue with a summary of why the Green Party, why am I going to do work with this, why is it important to have a political party. I'll quote John Carlin. I think it's probably the one most people quote him most. It's the, there's an elite class, it's a big club, and you ain't in it. Pretty true statement, but kind of defeatist, at least as far as I mean, look, as a comedian, he doesn't have to be the pitcher of a revolutionary slogan. But I want to remind everyone who quotes and likes John Carlin that you can also join a club. We can make our own club. And you can be in it. Because the thing about there's a club and you ain't in it is to say that there's the club or a club or the big club, the top club. And we can't have our own club, but we can. Club for workers or professionals. And we do. You have those associations. But it's not the one on top. That's because they're smaller. Because we're not wealthy. Because we don't control the means of production. We could do something about that, but we have to act politically. So these associations organizations need to be political ones. They're usually not. Either because they have to, they're not allowed to be political, or they choose not to be, so they're not stirring the pot. I summarize now. I've, I've read the full article before Howie's case for an independent left party, but I've, I've finally distilled it down into a one-page summary. So I'm really enjoying this. I'm going to make this the thing that I give to any party, anyone who joins the Greens or is interested. So if the, you know, it's like, here's, here's the case. Why should you be a dues-paying, supporting member of this party? Whether or not we do elections or not, because we could also just fund community projects and prefigurative stuff, like the, the, food, the food bank stuff, urban gardens, the maker spaces, and et cetera. But anyway, a.k.a. everything else in my area has had some kind of systemic problem or they don't address systemic problems. Green Party problems, I can imagine overcoming, maybe with doubts about the dual burden of contemporary politics, which is that collective politics of decline, people don't believe in the political party as of agent of change. We have we live in a more bound political system where everyone's cynical about it, rightfully so. And I'm making the case, or I want to, and I've made it for myself a number of times, and I have to convince myself over and over why am I still involved or even caring. And again, for the last three years, I haven't. I've been checked out a bit about it. 
pretty low morale. But everything else is not working. There is nothing else to me. The political, if we're going to have a political project, we need a political org. And if we do, it needs to be independent. And of course, it needs to be left wing. Why? Okay. Let's say. So let's go through the why, why one of the, each of these three things, independent, left, and a party. So there's the insider, first the case for independence. The insider party in a party or the movement in the party, fusion strategy, is not new and has deep flaws. They usually get co-opted by the Democratic Party every time. And I'm talking about Bernie. I'm talking about any progressive movement or group or formation, working families, party counts. Every time they're co-opted, you know, they're at the table, but they get crumbs. But doing this, and this is the important thing to me, all right, whether or not they get results, that can be true. And it's usually, you know, uh, I always have to back off. Say, you know, do do you. But it disallows any other outside options. You can't be an insider and an outsider. Once you're an insider, you can't do anything that's independent. You are now in the system, and you can't leave unless you break off completely. And then you're a pariah. Activists succumb when they do this. They succumb to careerism as well as the identity of being in the party in a party or a Democrat as an alternative, or the use of identity politics as an alternative gets blunted. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, the meaning of the sense is the identity of being on the left, to being a leftist or progressive. It gets blunted. It doesn't mean anything. And it disappears from the public view as the left just becomes the Democrats, which drives me nuts. And it confuses probably anyone else. Like, oh, the left. I'm of the left. The Democrats, Biden, the left, don't make me laugh. But that's what happens when leftists join the Dems. And then the Democrats get associated. Like, oh, they're the Socialist Party. Bah humbug, I say. We need a left that is not, that, so they become not of themselves or not for itself, but they become part of a centrist politics. So instead, to have a left of itself is to have a full socialist pro, pro, uh, platform, which is needed to break the polarized economy of rich and poor, to overcome all those contradictions I went on and on about. Reformers reject social ownership and worker self-interest, though, in this way. Sanders' message was not democratic socialism, but more social democracy and welfare politics, you know, alleviating, getting the capitalists to pay for some of the social reproduction of their labor, but not ever having it in, under our control, having some control over our destinies. And, and this disappeared, left-wing politics, as an alternative. You know, 2020 to 2024, what left-wing? What left politics has existed? It's been completely buried. And again, it's just all defensive voting. I'll, oh, you yeah, know, I, I don't have it in here, but you just have a commitment. All you're left with is a commitment to defensive politics. Got to vote for the Dems to stop Trump. It's so scary. He's going to punish blue states like he did last time. Did he? Was he able to? I didn't feel it. What I knew, what I know is that he attempted to, and it mobilized these progressives and liberals to actually get off their butts and be activists again. They're only actively shaping the world when they're reacting to the right. And they say, oh, I had to do all this work. I wouldn't have to do it if Trump wasn't elected. I blame you leftists for being independent, trying to do your own thing, not doing defensive politics. Because we've gotten so many gains. Oh, God, so many gains. The Biden presidency has been so good for the left, hasn't it? 
I say that sarcastically. So we'd have reduced to fighting for improving conditions of exploitation over ending them. Because that's what I want to do. And many others, too. They're kind of... The, cynical, the cynicism and apathy kind of come from the fact that any fight proposed by progressives and liberals is to improve conditions but not end the problem, the causes, you know, to, to make the exploitation end. Especially when it comes to us younger people who really, like, see the sham of the economy and, like, no, we don't want to work that hard. We don't want to be uh, climb the c- corporate ladder and, and have careers. Conversely, some think pieces in, from LinkedIn or whatever will be saying, oh, you know, it's actually a good thing that uh, all these young people just keep moving around. It's, it's better for the economy. Or don't, don't stay at a job for, uh, don't have a career for more than 10 years. Maybe that's not capitalist propaganda, because I kind of believe that too. Or maybe I need to rethink that. I don't know. But in America, the history, in the history of third parties in America, you know, independent politics has not really been valued. It's not really been a part of the American story. Why? Well, the American system, it's one of its great uh, things we're proud of, is that it bends. It grows voting rights when it faces a crisis. And this prevents the kind of real class conflict which happens when workers neither own parties because their rights were withheld. Because we actually give voting rights. It's like, yes, vote for the Dems or the Republicans. And thus people do not think, oh, I need my own politics because the elites are not including me. They're saying I don't deserve the right to vote. In this way, oh, you have all the opportunities to participate politically, but are you effective? Does it, does it matter? Money is speech. Money is political power. So it's, 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 it's individualist freedom, but not real social. You don't have any freedom in society. And that's what I mean by social freedom as well. What this has led to that is in America, independence, political independence, is treated more like a tactic or like a, a taste. Like, oh, I'm a politically independent thinker. Uh, when it needs to be a strategy, especially a strategy of movements, which was not the case for Black Lives Matter. It kind of was for Occupy. But that independence kind of meant we were crushed. We weren't absorbed. BLM was absorbed in, but it, and then it became even less effectual. Another problem to overcome is the memberless party. And that's what we have. That's the dominant form. The flaw of past and current efforts in party formation or progressive politics, let's say, is copying the corporate structure of the major parties. We need mass membership orgs made up of people who can hold leaders accountable. It's currently a lot of our orgs. You can't hold the leaders accountable because you don't actually have a vote for them. You don't avoid, You don't usually vote for board members. Or executive directors. Because when you pay dues or donate to something, you're not a member. You're not, uh, sorry, you you don't have any responsibilities outside of of giving. And thus, you don't get any rights. That's what I'm hitting on here. So I think more of our organizations need to have memberships where you're not just paying like into uh, the Columbia Record Club or the, the cheese of the month. But when you pay in, you get not only a thing like a tote bag or or access to the Patreon, um, the the online Patreon file, um, but you get rights. 
voting rights. And in some in some um, media creators kind of do this in a way where, oh, if you if you are a member of my Patreon, you get access to polls to decide what I'm going to do next as a content creator. That kind of thing. I like seeing that. But in our orgs, they're not democracies. They don't have any of that. They either poll, they're, they're trying to do some co, um, co-services, like ask, oh, what do you need from us? But it's one way, you know? It's, it's not a forum. It's not voting. It's not a political process. There's no power dynamic there. Or it's an unequal one. So what am I getting on about? Campaign committee, let's see. So members and parties now don't have rights or responsibilities. They are run like a capitalist business. And this goes for the DNC and spades. Uh, capital committees are monopolies, primaries, and other reforms. They didn't. They were for, They were done in the progressive era to break boss control, but they really didn't because they were implemented by the bosses. They were okay with it. So the function of the party boss changed from that of the manager of patronage, like the Albany machine, but then to donor money. That's what our political elites do. Primary candidates are just as pre-selected as before, or as in the case of recent cycles, they're managed. In the case of our current primary, they're just not holding them. And the Democrats, not even holding them. Now, here's the precedent of the Socialist Party in America. So these were veterans of the Populist Party in the 1890s. They took two lessons away from their experience in the progressive era by its end. They said no to fusion candidates. They wanted only due-paying members to vote on party decisions. That way you get rid of people just coming into a meeting and messing things up, sabotaging, being an agent provocateur. And they asked that disavows radical inclusion like Occupy had. And, uh, and at the end of Occupy, there were people saying, hey, we need a membership and to have dues if you're going to vote in the uh, GA. And this was kind of rejected, like, oh, you're putting a gate, you're gatekeeping, you're putting a barrier. It's like, yeah, but what if it's just $2 a month? What if it's nothing? But it's just something to show that you're not, a, you know, not, not, not someone fooling around here. Or someone who's going to show up and say, like, oh, I blocked this decision. I'm going to, you know, disrupt, and I'm never going to show up again. <laughs> and that is technically how the... Major parties exist, too. You have people who change their registration year to year. You have people who are conservatives registered as Greens so they can vote in our primary if we ever have one. Or it's forced via the New York state law. If we don't have a candidate, then anyone else can get it uh, and use the line. So they, they use that. They want actual representation, these uh, ex-populists, uh, the new socialist party, at a membership. Sorry, at the same time, direct primary reform made parties. Now, of course, but here's what kind of tamped down third parties in the 20th century overall. This goes for us now, too. Before, parties were these independent political organizations. But during the legislation that created primaries and referendums, these reforms, it also made political parties a state organ following rules on membership which basically comes down to if you register as the party, you're a member of it. And this handed power to professional managers. So after this case, the Socialist Party was crushed. You know, the state could just say, oh, you're not a real party because you're not following our rules. You're not organizing yourself the way we organize ourselves. 
You have to you have to be like us if you're going to be a legitimate party. And that's something that Como and the New York State has actually done now in full. It's like, oh, there's the legitimate parties and non-legitimate parties. And if you can't get enough votes and if you can't pay for enough uh, clout, you're not a legitimate party. So here's uh, he makes the case, a uniting wor- a worker majority. Certain breakdown of Americans, a 2% ruling class of capitalists, 23% of middle class, which which are professionals and managers, and a 60% who are the workers, who can be categorized as in, in the sectors of small business, oligarchic corporations, unionized public sector, or under supervision, referring to those in welfare or prison. So generally speaking, to unite the working majority, we need forums so they can discuss problems together for self-education and build solidarity. You know, Once you hear that the person who is the neighborhood over has the same problems as you, there's solidarity there. Yeah, you can unite against you know the developers, the big capitalists, the richest people in town. That's a simplistic way of putting it. But the challenge of breaking through longstanding, and this is the challenge of breaking through longstanding resentments as all sectors currently see each other as competitors. And now the case for bottom-up organizing versus the top-down mobilizing. So mass apathy is a result of alienation and results in disengagement. An independent party can fill the vacuum of all of this. It can avoid reproducing corporate class structures like business unions and nonprofits do. It can do the education and lateral comms communications. The newly educated work will do the rest and not manage them. Force uh, no selling out rules, no corporate money, no capitalist money. We kind of reframe that. And the meaning of bottom-up organizing is to be involved in movements, movement and party together. So what would be the goal of this independent left-wing party? Well, bottom-up electoral power. The usual situation is that local governments are run for local elites embedded in real estate and development. And... But local offices, they do matter. They do matter. And they're winnable. Local door canvassing campaigns can reach people without the very expensive indirect communications and big internet setups. And you don't need a big data machine. And in fact, in local matters, mass spending is unhelpful. Local election, you know, it's, it's just like the, the blowback of, <laughs> I finally saw a joke about this. So it's like, Oh, the annoying company that advertises to me I actually don't want to buy their product now. I'm going to buy the other one who doesn't interrupt my streaming. Thank you. Local elections are usually uncontested or nonpartisan, which negates some obstacles. Progressives in the Democratic Party don't change the whole thing and are used to keep others in. There are 500,000 local offices to run for. Our local governments, not so much in New York, but maybe we can surprise ourselves, they have many powers to advance our program, demonstrating competence by winning local office and doing a good job. This opens the gate for running for state offices, which are still semi-local and winnable, provided that you have strong field operations and use a checkerboard strategy by targeting the areas where you can build the most support or the more denser areas, using direct contact versus the mass media uh, that will just cover everything. You know, paying for radio and internet and Facebook social media advertising. It's not really good, hard engagement. 
And there are just general better conditions to do this work. Corporate type of workers, and this is speaking like over 30 years now, corporate type workers have grown over the last century. You know, there's this more workers are in the corporate sector, so there's not this divide between blue and white collar as much. It's used mostly to refer to the difference between professionals, managers, and everybody else. But that everyone else is a lot. It's, it's more than half. And you also have people in the what's called the caring professions, those in healthcare, teachers that are in public sector or they're professionals, but they have more solidarity with the rest of the workforce. There is less difference in worker relations. The, the middle class helping professions are more progressive and open to joining with other workers. A lot of other workers are you know, the pre-reactionary and whatever, but that's where the education and building solidarity part comes in. Breaking down those walls of otherness and afraid of the future because things are so unstable. But showing that stability comes from, from this large political project. And showing, winning local office, showing that, look, I too, commie I am, can balance the budget, not bring about economic hardship for you or avoid those catastrophic problems. But I want those non-reforms reforms like I talked about, creating commons, uh, overcoming and resolving these contradictions where if you try to make something better, it makes the economy worse, right? Because it's a capitalist economy and you're doing something that isn't very capitalist. But a lot of people aren't thinking in capitalist terms. They're not thinking in terms of their own life and time as commodities all the time. They're being trained to, but we resist it. Or creates that dissonance where, you know, that causes the mental, mental uh, breakdown. Makes us all crazy. So the rest, uh, I've come to the end of my written document. So now I'm going to spend the rest of the hour discussing, like, what would be my ideal outcome for WCAA? Or what do I really want that didn't happen here with my program? So I'll, I'll, I'll pitch it in terms of my failure. I want local news co-op. I want, I want a means of community news that's owned by the community or run and managed you know, by and for the community. Community meaning the public, people of Albany. So maybe I needed to think bigger than a community radio station, but it seemed like the thing that was pulling me in 2017. But I came across um, somehow a Medium article called Building a New Model for Community-Centered Local News, published beginning of uh, 2022. But it's more about the topic, not about when. It's written by uh, Simon or Simone Gaberpani. What can we learn about community service providers to build the next model of local journalism? There really doesn't seem to be a good answer to this. You know, the Real News Network has what it's doing, but it's not seem to be applicable. The Fair Law and Ambulance Corps in my hometown of Fairlawn, New Jersey, is an independent nonprofit supported in part by the municipal government. The Corps sign up regular people to take free classes with regional EMS academies and commit to spending time responding to medical emergencies in their community. Their membership also meets monthly for training, connection, and deliberation. You know, that management part. They offer CPR classes to the public, normal thing, and they provide first aid at community events. Some members pick up more shifts than others. Some go on and become nurses or doctors. Some have been in medicine for decades. 
This kind of community service plays a critical role in connecting the public with more specialized service providers or professions, right? Professions like journalists. So who plays that critical connector role for news organizations today? Who's answering local community needs? How are those first responders equipped? What's not getting the specialized attention it needs? What public outcomes could we imagine if citizens' basic, I like this phrase, it's a new thing, civic, a basic civic information needs were met? Otherwise, we call it a news desert. There are among the questions driving my year as a John Knight Community Impact Fellow at Stanford. And I'll be exploring them through this org called the Community Info Co-op Public Service Journalism Lab, which is through the Bloomfield Information Project centered in Bloomfield, New Jersey. When I first read this, I thought it was uh, Bloomberg. I'm like, what, why would Bloomberg be funding this? <laughs> it's not him. So he outlines a public funding model for public service local news. I launched a nonprofit community info co-op in 2018 to house the Info Districts Project. It's a public policy solution I've been working on since 2016 to address the local news crisis. You know, I've been harping about it practically as all my whole life, but basically since 05. The Bloomfield Information Project is an extension of the Info Districts Project and seeks to explore practical pathways for establishing community-run, publicly funded local news orgs. Based on existing models of funding public goods, info districts call for the creation of special taxing districts to distribute the costs of local news production and link revenue to public service and community engagement. So I have to back up and justify the logic here. That usually it's considered that in order for news to be independent and non-biased, it has to have independent and non-biased funding. Well, I think it's a question in capitalism of which source is least biased? Well, if it's advertisers, they have a bias. If it's government, it's assumed they have a bias. But something when you actually talk to journalists and the experts in journalistic independence, they kind of couch it not in terms of it doesn't matter where the funding comes from. It's a matter of is the journalism independent in its operations? where the funder is hands-off and says, this is a public product like water, and I'm not going to have a say in, in what's covered or how the journalism is done. It's a profession, and the professions will decide. But this is just like how oh, if you have a public hospital, the, the doctors are funded publicly, and that doesn't impact how they do medicine. To some extent, it does on a macroeconomic level, I guess. But I'm speaking more in the, the style and the, you know, the, the nitty-gritty of like, you know, you can't cover that. That hurts our advertisers. And you can't cover that because we're funded by the state. But state funding creates more freedom than when you're funded by capitalists because there's just more people you have to please. <laughs> um, that's what it feels like, I think. And that's what, I think that's the practicality of it. Uh, so through the fellowship of the Reynolds Journalism Institute at U Missouri, I documented more than two years of research on how to establish such special districts for local news in a white paper called How to Launch an Info District, which I may do some follow-up reading on, and I think I did. In the U.S., the Info District model has spread organizing efforts in California, Colorado, and New Jersey, where the Community Info Co-op commissioned a legal analysis to find pathways for establishing them in those states. 
Info districts enable new, more participatory forms of media that address gaps in information and civic engagement in underserved communities. But that's pretty much everyone if we're talking local news. I suppose larger metro areas are probably the only pe uh, people who are properly served. This new form of local journalism has some common characteristics. It provides news and information through accessible platforms that address information gaps. They organize and train community members, including inclusive pipelines for involvement in journalism, and relies on stakeholder engagement and audience feedback loops. And, and the important part here is when we say fully funded, we mean it's paying people to be journalists. So the people who are being trained, their jobs. It's a job grade. And it's a socially, civically required service. It's not debatable. People need access to information. And it's not just big data or whatever the city can provide. There's a lot more than that. So the City Bureau co-founder, Daryl Holliday, described this new form of local journalism in What Journalism Can Learn from Mutual Aid. So I really like that. My kind of people, a new type of newsroom that serves as the nerve center for local information hubs by reflecting, connecting the people it serves, prioritizing lived experience and disavowing the notion of objective gatekeeping. These newsrooms will redistribute journalism skills. Now there's that redistribute word away from selective and expensive higher education programs, but to the public, they will collaborate with non-traditional news sources and reduce the scarcity of resources exasperated by having news competition. They will democratize the news industry by providing more access to decision-making processes, forums, and such. These newsrooms will do away with heroes and hierarchies by sharing the responsibility of shaping how news and info are created and distributed. And back to the writer. These new local news orgs build capacity instead of extracting wealth. They identify information needs, facilitate spaces for exchange, supply the training of resources community members need to address their neighbors' needs. In this way, they encourage news and information exchange in the public interest. Because it is. So why isn't it a public good? In American politics, we just say, oh, well, we have the First Amendment, which enshrines the right for journalism to do its job. What good is a right if you don't have the means? This model is key to restoring local news deserts and inspiring civic participation across the country. As Holliday would also note in Journalism is a Public Good, Let the Public Make It, he wrote in the Columbia Journalism Review, The solution to the current crisis in journalism isn't simply to save jobs, but to willingly and intentionally democratize the means of journalistic production. New infrastructure that weaves together participatory media and public assets will democratize journalistic skills and could unlock a movement for collective action, a not-so-secret weapon against news deserts and misinformation hidden in plain sight. It relies on thousands of everyday people who are eager to participate, organizations with physical media makerspaces, and communities taking collective action. A lot of good stuff there. So this new community-as-service provider model has the potential to become the dominant form of local journalism in this century. And public funding will be critical to its growth with info districts among various federal, state, and local funds that should be made available to sustain this new class of social service provider. Now, if you're skeptical about this, just think about libraries. Libraries are a public source of information. And 
included in funding libraries are the professionals, librarians, to catalog and organize this information. It includes service workers like the janitors and help staff and, and even a social worker or two. Archivists are hired. And it's all funded with public taxes and people are pretty fair. You know, it's people see it's pretty fair. You get a lot of stuff with our public library system. And if you get public news, it will be cheaper than what's privately available and it will provide a lot more as it will be a local product you know news for albany as speaking as a resident of albany but this could be anywhere you know why why is it up to just the enterprising individual i think but anyway i feel like i kind of should have read this back in 2016 i would have been working on something like this or trying to, well, I guess my idea was to try to do something like this within this community org I'm in now, or leaving. And I'm leaving it because it's very clear that to me now, it's taking a lot of time, to understand that this is a separate project that is not the same as this one. I was trying to make the square fit the circle, or the circle fit the triangle. So, But we are now in the early stages of this transition. So how can local communities begin building towards that future today? What networks, workflows, tech, and programs do we need to move purposefully towards a grassroots public media ecosystem? So he launched this project to answer questions. I started reading that uh, how to start an info district, and it kind of like kind of starts with a the minimum amount is to map all the local sources of info, you know, orgs, nonprofits, the city. They all post little bits and just make a newswire that collects all of that and, you know, like a Twitter feed, but obviously not Twitter anymore, but uh, has that feed of information so that you can go and look at all of the kind of posts. On social media, you basically have to follow all of their individual pages. That's a lot of work, and you may not know what you're missing. I do not think I follow, nor do I want to follow every org in Albany that has announcements or produces information of some kind. But I'd like to follow one org that summarizes it or categorizes it based on a topic or neighborhood or what my interest is. So I'm going to circle back around to a very short piece about income sharing. Is an income sharing community right for you? And I read this, I was like, is it right for me? When I first heard about the concept, and this is written by a Saul of Hearts, that's just the byline name. Doesn't matter when. But uh, I'm reading this from the page, uh, sorry, the, the site Foundation for Intentional Community. Intentional community is basically any kind of eco-village, hippie, commune, or shared house or, or housing co-op you know it's if a group of people come together and say we want to create community in a place that's an intentional community so there's a lot of different things that go under that and the first is like the income sharing one so i was pretty skeptical when i first heard of it it had been hard enough for me to stabilize my own finances after graduating from college during the recession i wasn't sure it would be up for sharing finances with a spouse never mind an entire community it's like, oh, there's other people. I can't trust them. But the more that I learned about it, the more I realized that many of us are de facto income sharing already. The difference is that we often think of it as expense sharing. 
If you've ever lived in a group house, been a part of a meal plan, or co-owned a vehicle, you've essentially been income sharing. But because the focus was on what you paid for and not what you earned, it didn't feel that way. Pooling resources and sharing expenses feels safe. Giving up control over our income is scary. You have to trust in other people, having a democratic process. Maybe it's not going to be the right one. But I found it helpful to think of income sharing less as an either-or option, but as a spectrum. Of the Twin Oaks community in Virginia, which is about 100 people, everyone has to take part in the system or it won't function. Although they themselves have had trouble with their economic planning, they've settled on a better system, but this was after a decade of like it being quite a uh, tyranny of the active. Uh, they tried gamifying it. it didn't, that didn't work. So residents work a full-time week on community projects, ranging from the businesses that the community owns to cooking to childcare. So they've socialized those, that social labor. In return, everyone's expenses are covered, housing, food, health insurance, transport, among with a monthly stipend for personal needs and travel. Though if you look it up, it's, ooh, it's like 50 bucks, not a lot. And they argue about like, well, maybe we shrink that, but increase the budget for like, group games and stuff or nights out they don't have a big surplus sharing income frees up individuals to do less income generating work than they would need to do if they were living independently as long as the group as a whole is doing enough income generating work this is one way that utility maximization comes in allowing more specialization and personal flexibility the way that Twin Oaks residents see it, they have access to more resources than any single person could afford individually, even if their individual incomes are lower than they would be working a mainstream job. And while a 40-hour work week might seem like the antithesis of a carefree communal life, it's actually pretty reasonable when you consider that household responsibilities are included in that. So imagine you work a 40-hour work week, but actually six of it is your household chores. So that eight hours free is actually free. Not you have to spend it cooking, cleaning, preparing for the next day. So if Twin Oaks lies at one end of the spectrum, you know, whole full commune, the Compensera commune is somewhere in the middle. Rather than running a shared business, some residents work full or part-time jobs outside of it because it's just a shared household. And uh, they, they have a video to show how it works. Their income-sharing communities turn the concept of being the breadwinner on its head. Instead of valuing work to the degree that society values it, income-sharing communities can set their own values. In this community, one resident's income as a lawyer allows the others to focus on freelancing, maintenance work, and childcare, allowing, according to From Point A blog, which is the name of it. Income sharing reduces economic precarity and the stability in the same way that a community-supported agriculture share does. When you buy into a share up front before the growing season begins, you benefit from the produce raised by your local farmer and share the risk of the growing. If the growing season is weak, you may have a slightly smaller share, but the farmer doesn't go under and then can continue to produce next year. Similarly, a bumper crop increases your share of produce, all for the same upfront investment. Sharing income can serve as a buffer for all residents, ensuring that no one loses their home or access to food simply because of a job transition or a medical emergency. 
Federation of Egalitarian Communities, which is some you know big org, or umbrella org anyway, which helps communities transition towards doing some things like income sharing, lists several core values that their members should meet, which is that they hold land, labor, and income and other resources in common, and they assume responsibility for the needs of its members, receiving the products of the labor and distributing these and all other goods equally. You know, if you think individually, it's like, oh, I have to take care of other people. Yeah, but they also take care of you. Now, there's some kind of, like, uh, there are the personalities where, like, if you're, you've gone your life deprived, I suppose, you're just like, well, I'm so used to caring for myself. I'm uncomfortable other people caring about me. But that, that's a you and intimacy problem to be worked with. That's not a human nature. Our economy needs to be based around the assumption that uh, you're all, you're just on your own. Because obviously, not, not, maybe not so obviously, but common experience is also that isn't the case. People will share. People will do favors for free. And others will not because the way their brain's trained or no one's ever helped them out consistently so, uh, so the site is, um, and that, you know, Federation of Communities, definitely a place I'm going to check out in my spare time if I pursue something like this, which I really want to. Maybe bulk buying, you know, expense sharing is the first step, and then income sharing comes later. So that expense sharing is something I'm kind of doing now. I'm sharing my internet costs. Uh, I want to share housing costs eventually. And uh, then it can be shared income because I'm comfortable with that, especially once I have enough of it, I suppose, where it's like, yep, I, I've got 10 grand. I could basically, instead of divvying up a bunch, uh, bunch of charities or whatever, I, I want to go to like these five people, but I'm not just give them a stipend. I want them to take care of me a little bit. I want to share. And I'm willing to put in a little bit more if it means actually having community and people, <laughs> you know, having that thing that other people just really struggle with. And, and yeah, post online about. And the last thing I have is about time banking. But I've, co- I've covered that a number of ways in uh, the Three Left Show. So, but the summary of that is basically you, you trade, you use a, a currency that's a bookkeeping system that's online, maybe put on the blockchain. But it basically it tracks, it acts as a ledger to track all the exchanges that you do as you trade time with other people. And the point of the currency is that it doesn't have to be a one-to-one trade, like I have to do something for you and you have to do something with me. I do something for you, but then you can then do, um, and then I can do, have someone else do something for me. Not It doesn't have to be that. Person A and go person B. And that way, it's, uh, it's usually trading services because it is time banking. It's something that takes an amount of time. But I've seen um, that you, with uh, Simbi, the site that I use, it's credits, so it's not actually connected to a particular unit of time. It's just, uh, you know, I get 70 semi credits for this service. And then so people can list items, like Etsy kind of stuff, and then that can be worth X amount of credits. And so the credit is sort of used sometimes as a facsimile of the dollar, but because it's not dollars... They can be created whole cloth. There's an infinite amount of credits that can circulate. You can be given a bunch to start with. And that's definitely one of the rules when you start a time bank. Give new members some hours to, to, to you know, spend with people and get a sense for it and to, you know, get started. 
And uh, and I went to a time banking conference, so I've seen all the success stories and uh, and all the ways it's helped people, especially when there's no money locally. People are broke or poor. And the time banking, uh, unfortunately, it's like it's one of those projects where it's like it grows when there's scarcity or in recession. And then once people can actually pay for goods and services with dollars, it wanes. I would like to have a community project. I want something that grows and maintains and actually replaces the need for participating in capitalism. Real freedom. That's what freedom is to me. Not the freedom to buy and sell and buy and sell others and things and exploit. It all seems fair when you're on top or in the middle or you're doing well. To me and to when I look at the bottom, it's very unfair. I see the symptoms of the contradictions uh, that I list in the first hour. So that I'm going to play one more final piece of music or two. But I suppose I should wrap up with a final how you can contact me. I'm on Facebook, Daniel J. Platt. Of course, the pages and other social media stuff, which is uh, Instagram, Facebook, Macedon will still be there, though for the most part, not maybe, no one's interacting with them. So, But I still have the pages on Patreon and LibrePay, so you can donate some money. I had one Patreon at one point, and that was temporary because he had hard times. There is my show email, threeleftshow.gmail. But more importantly, www.threelefts.news is where you can find the full archive of Three Left Show episodes as well as all the episodes for what's left in Albany. And with that, I encourage you to join me in any collective community project or start one yourself. But if I think the project is teaching others how to start them so we can discover... What is actually left in Albany? No, just...
Shit myself 